Um, if you have a Bible and you want to go ahead and open, we are going to be in the book of First John this morning, First John chapter three. Um, as you see, we are in this uh, mini series as part of the journey called the Forge of Perseverance. Um, and if you if you're not sure what a forge is, that was a that was a picture one there on the video. It's this this idea of of strong heat that takes metal and makes it malleable, where it can be formed into what you want it to be. So you can take this stick of iron and heat it up and forge it into something that's useful for you. Um, and when we, when we think about perseverance as followers of Christ, I think what we tend to focus on is persevering through suffering or maybe persecution. Uh, so we need to, our faith needs to persevere when difficult time comes, and we need to persevere when other people are coming against us. And that is, that is true, and probably a vast majority of perseverance in the Bible does speak to those, those issues. But there's another part of perseverance that we as Christians need to talk about, we need to consider, and we need to really dig into, because it's just as real and it can be just as detrimental to our faith, but oftentimes we're very, very hesitant or even afraid to talk about it. And what I mean here is persevering through things like guilt and doubt. You see, that's a real thing. We, we've, God, from the very beginning of all of scriptures, has called us to be a people of faith. We operate and connect to God by faith. And so if guilt and doubt come in, it will do anything but increase our faith and can cause us to really get off track. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us to take a few minutes and look at this idea of persevering through guilt and doubt. Um, you know, th this comes a lot of times when, when we as Christians realize things that are going on in our life. Maybe we realize there's a, there's a cycle of ongoing sin. Or maybe we look at the lives of other people around us and we think, man, they are so much closer to Jesus. They have it all together. They have got it going on. I'm not like them. I, maybe I'm just really not even a Christian. Maybe I'm just faking it. Maybe it's not real. Or I've got this sin and I just can't seem to break it. And there's times when I don't want to break it. And I'm just there. I'm just kind of living in it. So maybe I just, maybe Jesus doesn't love me. And maybe the gospel is true for everybody else. But, but really, I just don't see how God could love me during this time. So really, how could I be one of his children? Or maybe we, we hear something in the Bible or we hear a sermon and we realize that there's things in our lives that maybe we love more than Jesus. And so when we see these things, they kind of weigh down on us. And what it tends to do is not push us towards Jesus, but to push us further and further away, both from Jesus and really those around us who should be pushing us towards Jesus. And so it tends us towards isolation, towards this really kind of moving further and further away. And the more guilt and the more doubt that's there, the further we kind of go. Now, there's all kinds of doubt. There's all kinds of guilt. And we can't really address all of it this morning because the text doesn't address all of it. So I'm not specifically saying somebody has said something about the Bible and you're not sure whether now the Bible is credible or not. I'm really speaking to those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus 
But then at some point in the journey, begin wondering if that was true, if that was real. Did I really do that? Because I hear what the Bible is saying, I see what other people's lives are like, and I'm just not sure that that's my life. So really, is it real? Is my faith true? And that's what we want to talk about this morning. We're, we're going to be in this book of 1 John. And 1 John's really good to help us with this. John was written by the Apostle John. So he was with Jesus, the longest living apostle. Um, he lived until he was really old. And um, he wrote this to a group of churches in what is now modern-day Turkey. It's pretty much believed that John, in his old age, moved to Ephesus and was the pastor in Ephesus. And then he's writing not only to the church at Ephesus, but the churches that were surrounding there. And John is helping them understand how they can know if they are a genuine believer and what life looks like because of that. One, one commentator said... Um, that we can not only know joy, but can live a holy life and be reassured of salvation, even though we are still far from perfect. It seems that the believers in John's day are wrestling with this. They see the reality of sin in their life. They see that they're not perfect, that they're not really following Jesus the way that they could or should. And so they're starting to wonder. They're starting to doubt. They're starting to kind of pull away from the faith. And John, as this elder pastor, is coming alongside them and he says, I want you to know what it looks like to be in the faith. I want to reassure you, if you are a Christian and you're struggling, I want to reassure you because that reassurance will lead to an even deeper faith. But John also doesn't want people to have a fake understanding. He doesn't want them to have a false sense of security that because they grew up in the church or their parents are believers for a long time or they've heard the stories that because of that, everything is okay in their life. There's evidence. Now, John's style is, is different than like Peter or Paul's. Now, I don't know about you, but like my mind works really good with the way that Paul writes. Because Paul writes in this style, this kind of like logical arguments. So most of the time in Paul's letters, he starts out in the beginning. He kind of tells us, this is truth about God, truth about us because of the gospel. And because of that, now our life should look this way. And so it's kind of this sequential argument. He's building a case one step after the other. And for me, that's the way my mind works. Like I get that and I can follow that along and I can dig into it. John doesn't write that way. John writes, instead of more of a, of a linear style, John writes in a, in a cyclical style. He kind of states one thing, states another, then comes back to the thing that he's stating. And so it's kind of like a wheel that's rolling. It's just kind of going like this. And he keeps coming back to the same themes over and over again. And he draws little implications out every time he comes back around to them. One of the commentators said, it's more of like a symphony. So um, I don't know if this will help or not, but I just think it's awesome. My little girl who's four has heard the Imperial March for Star Wars a lot because me and the boys are just fans. And so she walks around and she sings. Dun, 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 dun. And she, she's doing it like she's playing with her animals. She's like, walk, 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 here we go, walk around. And she's got this Imperial March theme. Now, if you know anything about Star Wars, that's kind of an iconic song that you can hear that one little snippet and you know, oh, that's the Imperial March from Star Wars. Darth Vader. <laughs> He's about to come out, he's going to pull out his red lightsaber, and he's like, I am your father. And you know that because you hear that. But when you hear that song, 
it's repeated, right? That same kind of tone kind of keeps coming back, and you get the building of the song. It's got different places, but it's simple. It's a symphony. It keeps coming back. Well, John kind of writes that way. And so what John doesn't do is address one thing and then move to another and move to another. He continues coming back to them. So one of the things that we did is as I was reading this and I was trying to study it, just be honest, this makes 1 John a lot harder for me personally to preach because I like the linear style. So for this one, it makes it a little harder for me to get into it. So what I had to do is I had to go back and I read 1 John and say, what is it that he's getting at? I read these commentators. I was like, okay, so let's see what the cycle is. So I was reading it. And really, there's kind of three things that I saw John continues to point out and does it slightly different ways, but he keeps coming back to them. The first one is this, is that those who are genuine believers hate sin. That's kind of the big picture. So the first thing, first part of the cycle, those who are genuine believers hate sin. So we see this, 1 John 1, 6 and 7. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we say we are in him, but we walk in darkness, we're liars. All right, 1 John 2, 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Same idea, just from the different side. It's not that you hate sin, but that you love righteousness. 1 John 3, 6 and 7. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. 1 John 5, 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So John is constantly going back to this theme in his writing that if you are a genuine believer, your life is not characterized by sin. Your life is characterized by a pursuit of righteousness. But there's another theme that keeps going. Those who are genuine believers love other believers. So it's not just that we hate sin, but it's that we love other believers. So 1 John 2, 9 through 10. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. 1 John 3.10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness, going back to the other one, is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 1 John 4, 7 through 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not know God, anyone who does not love, does not know God because God is love. 1 John 5, 1, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. And so John keeps coming back to these themes. The third theme is that all of this is of the Spirit. The Spirit shows us Christ, reveals Christ, gives us faith in Christ, and then produces this fruit in us. And so John keeps going back to these things. But here is what one of those results is. The result is we continue reading this, and what it does is it turns a spotlight on our own lives. And we begin asking the question, now wait a minute, I know about this thing in my life that I'm not fighting against, that I've not been able to beat. There's this sin that I've kept hidden from everybody else, but man, I cannot defeat it. And now the Bible is telling me that 
If I keep on sinning, which I seem to be doing, that I'm not of God, does that mean, John, that you're telling me because I, maybe I'm not really a believer? Or, or maybe it's, you know, you know I, I like the church. I mean, I like going to church. They're nice people there, but I'm not really close to them. I don't really have deep friendships there. I don't know that I would characterize it as a love. Maybe the people there just aren't as important to me. Does that mean that I'm, that I'm not really a Christian? And so the effect of John hammering on these things over and over can cause within us a concern that maybe we aren't what we say that we are. And John, moved by the Spirit, good pastor that he is, wants to address that with us and not leave it hanging and cause us simply to doubt and then walk away but he brings this up, and then like a good pastor, he comes alongside this and says, okay, now that these things are in your heart, let me show you how to deal with them. Let me show you about this. And that's what we want to do this morning. We're going to look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. And my prayer this morning is that you, if you go through this, because here's the thing, I believe, and we'll talk about this in just a second, I believe there's people in this room who are dealing with this right now. And one of the reasons I believe that it's because I tried not to preach this passage. I wanted to do something else. And I kept coming back to it. And I felt this overwhelming sense that God said, we need to talk about this this morning. So I think that there are some of you in this room right now who may be dealing with this, who may be struggling with this, and nobody knows about it. And God, in his goodness and his mercy towards you, this morning has brought you here and has brought this word that you would hear, that you would be steadfast, and your faith would deepen. And it could be that there's some of you in this room this very morning you came because somebody invited you or you came because it's Sunday and it's what you do on Sunday mornings. And maybe you're not a follower of Christ. And down inside, you know the reason why your heart comes against you is because you've not followed Christ. Can I tell you, there's no accident that you are here. God has this for you this morning and he wants you to be free from guilt and he wants you to be free from sin and he wants you to be surrounded by a group of people who will love you and walk with you. And he calls you this morning to turn to him. 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. I want to read it and then we're going to pray. 1 John 3, 19 through 24 says this. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. It is your word written by John for the people in Asia Minor. And it is your word inspired by the Holy Spirit to transcend time and place that we this morning in Rock Hill, South Carolina would read it and be challenged by it and be comforted by it. And so I pray, Father, that we would submit to your spirit even now. Pray that you would lead us into the truth 
And I pray for my friends who may be struggling with doubt and guilt even now that you would bring freedom in the hope of the gospel. We love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So as I was reading this passage, I think there's three statements we can make concerning this topic based on what this passage has here. The first one is this, doubt and guilt are common. Doubt and guilt are common. Notice as we look at verses 19 and 20, what we see here is there's an assumption on John's part that there will be people who have doubt and who have guilt. We see that in the words that he uses in verse 19. He says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Now this word reassure is oftentimes translated in the Greek New Testament as persuade. What it means is, is our heart before God will have this sense of, I, I just don't think it's true. I just don't think I've been redeemed. I just don't think because of this evidence of these things that I'm seeing in my life, I am not sure that I am there. And the truth of the gospel and the truth of what we will talk about in a minute causes us to rightfully examine our hearts and be reassured. The second thing that he says is that whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. This is an idea here. He's addressing that our hearts will bring guilt towards us and there will be doubt in our life. That is good news. And you may be asking, why in the world is that good news? It's good news because when you feel doubt, and when you feel guilt, you feel isolated. You feel less than. You feel a whole lot less spiritual than everybody else who's sitting around you right now. And you say in your mind, if they only knew what was going in my head, they would probably kick me out of here. And what you may find is the very person sitting next to you is dealing with the exact same thing. It is common for us to deal with doubt or guilt. And maybe you haven't. This isn't something, this isn't a guarantee that every single person who is going to be doing this, who is going to be following Christ, is going to struggle with doubt or is going to struggle with guilt. But what we can't do is say, this is just something that's uncommon. It's strange. You're weird if you're dealing with this. And it comes because we see that maybe sometimes we're not hungry for God's word. We like the people at church, but we like our friends outside even more. And you don't really fight to kill sin. You just kind of work at keeping other people to see it. And all of this, we ask the question, am I really a follower of Christ? Is this what it looks like? Am I really one? Well, we have to know that the Bible encourages us to examine our lives. So a passage that Fudd preached on a couple weeks ago, 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter says, therefore, brothers... He's referring to Christians, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. He says, make every effort to make your calling and election sure, another translation puts it. Always make sure, examine yourselves, are you of the faith? Uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul writes, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you indeed fail to meet the test? God doesn't say we should go through an unchecked life. 
But the point of God calling us to examine our lives, just as the point of John in writing these things, is not because God wants to put a guilt trip on us and make us just doubt. I've been around some preachers sometime who I think enjoy making people doubt their salvation so they can try to get numbers of people who make a redecision. And I don't, I don't know their hearts completely, and so I don't want to go completely there, but I have heard people that I think stand up and preach, and they do everything they can to make people doubt their salvation so that then they'll make another decision. That's not what God's trying to do here. He's not trying to force doubt on you. He's not trying to say, every one of you should doubt, and now you should recommit your life. What is he saying here? He brings out these things in our lives so that we can turn from them so that we can recognize them, so that we can see. Maybe this sin that I'm not fighting against, maybe it's because we've become lazy in our lives. Maybe it's because we've not been diligent. Maybe it's because we've started loving something more than we love Jesus, and God in his goodness brings this up to us, and he shows it so that we can turn from it. So that this thing that really robs us of our joy can be put aside so that we can find true joy in him. Because notice what it says, when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. When guilt comes up, we know it in part, God knows it in full. He knows all of it. And then the gospel comes in, and we remember that when we place our faith in Christ, he not only forgives the things we've done in the past and hopes we do really good in the future, he forgives all of our sin, and he gives us a new heart. And so then when God brings up these things that come up in our life, and we're, we're not fighting sin, and we're not loving others, then what we do is he takes it and he applies the gospel to it. And he says, if you really have believed, you'll see this. And you'll say, I don't want to live in this. And I will fight against it. I will turn from it. And he knows everything about us and loves us anyway. You see, guilt and doubt, they're, they're common, but they're not an end. God wants us to see it so that we can turn from it and really trust in him. Second statement that we can make coming from this is that the Spirit gives evidence for our hope. Now, this is kind of, this is, this is tied in, and I feel like because John can go kind of cyclical, I'm going to go kind of cyclical. So I'm not going to go in order. I'm going to verse 24 here, because I think then once we get to 24, we'll come back around and see how this works. But notice in verse 24 what it says. Whoever keeps his commandment abides in him, and he in them. And by this we know he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. John is all throughout 1 John, talked about how the Spirit works in us to produce this kind of fruit. And so one of the things we find is that when we're looking and we're asking the question, am I really the one, am I really a Christian? Am I really following Christ? We have to understand that those who are following Christ will have fruit in their life. Here's the thing. Oftentimes the fruit of our lives is very hard for us to see. Especially if you are already feeling doubt and guilt because when you are already feeling doubt and guilt you can't see anything positive in your life you'll turn everything on its head because we've already started down that path so then if the spirit has given evidence which leads us to hope in the midst of this feeling of despair how do we find out about it and what i would submit to you 
is where this is intricately tied in with the loving your brothers, loving those who are believers. We need other people in our lives who know us and can speak truth to us when our hearts are speaking lies to us. We need other people who will walk with us and who can speak and say, I see this evidence in your life. I see this going on in your life. Here are specific examples where I can see you pursuing righteousness. Here are specific examples where I can see you demonstrate a love for the body. And what we find is that as we have others who walk with us right beside us, caring deeply about us, fellow members of the body, they can speak truth to us when our hearts condemn us. You see, because as people walk with us, they can see the evidence of the Spirit, even if it's hard for us to see. It's just a really good reminder that the church is not just a group of people who gather on Sunday mornings to sing a few songs and listen to a guy speak for a while. The church is a gift from God to help strengthen and encourage us when we're at our lowest points. You see, we can't see it all the time, but other people can. And if we don't have people who can do this, we're going to be wondering if we're, if we're even going to be faithful to what God has commanded us to do. You know, I totally did not go into this sermon when I was preparing it thinking it would have anything to do with community. But the more I studied it, the more I became convinced that we must not simply come on Sunday mornings and count it as good. We have got to invest our lives with other believers. When we're part of a body, we're more than just a one-time gathering. That is good. We don't miss it. But that is one of the reasons why it's so important that we do things like community groups and fellowship with one another. It's more than just, well, that's just something that our program, that our church does. It's an opportunity for you to be around people who know you and who you will know so that when you go through this or when they go through this, you can be one of those pillars who come and help hold them up and secure them that God by his grace would give you to them or give them to you so that you in the midst of any doubt and any type of guilt they can come alongside you and they can speak the truth of the gospel into your life and they can tell you of the evidence that they've seen and the flip side of it is some of us may be faking a relationship with Christ we may be faking it we know the words we know what to do we know what to say but when you put yourself in that kind of community with others, the evidence will also come to the forefront. And it could be that there's those times we start feeling, we start wondering, and we go to those people and they say, well, I've had some concerns because I haven't seen fruit in your life. So I've been praying. I've been asking God to show it. And there's some concerns. You may walk together and say, I'm not really a believer. I need to trust Christ. And God, by his mercy, would put people around you that would help you to see if that's even the case. We have to understand that the Spirit gives evidence for our hope, and then He also gives us others to either reassure and affirm or to point out where we may be walking away from Christ. Third thing is this assurance deepens our walk. You see this in verses 21 through 23. 
Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Now, if we're believers and we we feel this kind of disquieted part of our soul, it's really going to lead us to be stagnant in our pursuit of Christ. Oftentimes, we feel this guilt or we feel this, this condemnation or we feel this doubt, and it doesn't push us towards Jesus. It often just causes us to either become stagnant or move away from Christ. And then that kind of compounds everything. So now I'm feeling this. But no matter what I do, I don't feel like I'm going towards Christ. So I feel like I'm just rolling further and further away. And so it's all compounded. I feel guilty, but now I see my sin even more. I tried to fight it this one time and I failed. So then it just keeps going. Or I want to start doing more at church, but then I couldn't go and I couldn't do this. Well, I just don't really care about it now. Oh my gosh, now I don't love people. And And we get into this cycle and it pushes us further away. What we find is that when we submit to this and we see the Spirit giving that evidence in our life, it helps not only stop that cycle, but Move us closer to Christ. We see that in these verses. Because notice the first thing he says, and this sounded weird to me when I first read it. It says, whatever we ask, we receive from him. Now, I just really was trying to figure out why all of a sudden John started talking about prayer. Prayer wasn't in here anywhere. He hadn't mentioned it before. He hadn't talked about our prayers being hindered. He hadn't talked about anything. But now all of a sudden, he's talking about our assurance, and he says, and we get what we, what we ask from him. And it really hit me that as we draw near to God, the, the love of God, the joy of God, this nearness to God moves our hearts to want to speak to him more, to praise him more, to seek his face more, to really to commune with him even on a more deeper level. And as we do, we're going to present our request to God. It is going to become more natural because we have come back into his presence. We feel his nearness. We feel the joy of who he is. And it's naturally going to come with us longing to be with him, to speak to him, to talk to him. And it comes all back in there together. So we know that, that he hears our prayers and we want to pray more. The other thing is that we begin to fight against sin even more. Notice what it says. It says that we, we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. The confidence in our prayers is related to our obedience and our desire to do that which pleases God. We will fight sin more and pursue obedience. Now notice The language is of fighting sin. The language isn't we will completely conquer sin. We will never, ever, ever, ever sin again. The idea here is that we don't just become satisfied to live in a cycle of sin. We constantly are struggling to fight against it and be obedient because of who Christ is. And as our hearts are assured, we are strengthened To take one step at a time, one day at a time, one sin at a time, and fight tooth and nail until God conquers that and then he moves in another area of our life and he begins conquering that. When our hearts are full of doubt and full of guilt, we don't fight sin. We feel conquered by sin. But as our assurance grows and our hearts draw near to him, There's a sense of hope, a sense of strength, 
and a sense of confidence that overcomes us as we know God loves us, He is for us, He knows everything about me and loves me in spite of all of that. He has given me His Spirit that I might pursue Him and I'm going to follow after that. And there's a strength and a confidence that comes from that. And then the third thing is we will begin to love the brothers more deeply. Do you see how this works? The very thing that kind of is the evidence of us being believers and following Christ are the things that as our hearts are assured, we begin doing them even more and more and more as God works in us. We see that in verse 23, that we keep his commandment, believe in his son, and love one another just as he's commanded us. So what do we do here? Well, we need to close this thing and get out of here because it is hot. And I should have just preached on hell this morning because it's been a real good example. What do we do? Well, there's four things. And we'll try to go through these somewhat quickly. But, if, but let's, let's just kind of draw these out. We've already talked about a lot of them, but let's just kind of land this plane. We all need to examine our hearts. We all need to examine our hearts. We already saw in the scripture several places where... We are told and commanded to examine our hearts. We read 1 John and it causes us to examine our hearts. We all need to examine our hearts. Not to develop a sense of guilt, but to see, is there something there? Is there something? Do we really hate sin? Do we really love the body? We need to pray earnestly that the Spirit will empower us to do these things well. And then we need to act. What sins do you need to fight? What do you need to remove from your life so that you are more connected with believers that God has placed there? What's coming between you and someone else in the church that you need to address and forgive or ask forgiveness? Is repentance needed? We've got to remember that repentance is turning from sin and turning to God, turning from disobedience and turning towards obedience. You see, what happens a lot of times is we'll hear something like this, we'll become convicted, we'll kind of have our hearts assured, and then we won't take the next step. Is there something that needs to be turned from? Is there something we need to repent from? Is there something we're trusting in more than we're trusting in Jesus, and we need to turn and pursue that? God is so good that he would unearth sin in our life. He is so good that he would do that. Because he doesn't want us to settle for lesser joys and live lives that feel like we've been conquered all the time. In his goodness, as we examine our lives, he reveals things that are wrong. And then he says, turn from it and turn to me. And I will give you the rest. I will give you the strength. I will give you the joy for my name's sake. We need to examine our lives. Secondly, we must deal with guilt and doubt. It is not unique to you. So this morning, if you walked in here, and maybe this has been a bad week or a bad month or a bad year or last bad 10 years, and you're just saying, I just don't know. I know in my head that this is true, but there's part of me that in my life, I'm just not sure if I've really believed this, if I've really done this. I want you to know, if you keep this bottle up inside, you're not availing yourself to the weapons God has given you to fight this very thing. The other thing I want to encourage you as a church is we need to be a place where people can be honest. And I think that we are. 
I think we're a place where people can talk about that. I once, I once heard a pastor say, and I think this is really good. He said, it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. And we need to be a place where it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. <clears throat> I wish I'd come up with that because it's kind of cool. We, the longer we keep it bottled up inside, the more we separate ourselves from what God has given us to fight the very thing that we need to fight. So who are the people that you have surrounded yourself around that love Jesus and love you enough to walk with you through this? Who will you talk with? And if someone talks to you about this, be gracious, gracious and truthful. Do not make them feel as though they are a reject. Do not make them feel as though they are less than. But don't make up platitudes and just simply tell them, oh, everything's okay. Hear what they have to say. Ask, what genuine evidences do I see? And speak truth. Third thing is this. Community is vital for our personal health as individuals and as a church. Community is vital. Without it, we will either become a club or we will die. We will be ineffective in our pursuit of holiness, in our pursuit of righteousness, in our pursuit of the gospel. God has so designed us that we would be a people who would come together and walk with each other and love each other and encourage each other and rebuke each other and receive each other back. It is vital. So, so can I be very blunt? If you're a serial attender, will you give yourself to a church fully? If it's not Remedy, another one that loves Jesus, preaches the gospel, lo loves the gospel... Give yourself to the church. Don't be a serial attender. Don't be a church hopper who, who finds a place, hangs around until things get tough. Can I tell you, things are going to get tough at every church. Nothing's always going to be perfect. The only way you keep yourself from doing that is just by showing up late on Sunday mornings and leaving a little bit early. Then you can guard yourself against things getting tough at church. But can I tell you something? That is not good for your soul. What's good for your soul is you do it the way God designed it. That you find a body and you become part of that. And you walk with them and they walk with you. We live in a day and age where church membership seems like something that's just really old-fashioned. And really not as important as travel ball teams and other things we do on the night, in the middle of the night, in the week and all that. And church is just something we do on the weekends. Can I tell you, church is God's idea. Not mine and Fuds, not the Southern Baptist Conventions, not anybody else's. This is God's idea. And He has declared, this is for your good. This is for your hope. This is for your joy. This is what I will use to walk alongside you when your heart seems to condemn you. I will use this. Let it not be something that is an afterthought, but something that is priority for you. The fourth thing is this. When you examine your life, you may find that you truly need to repent and trust Christ for the very first time. You may walk through this and realize, 
All I've done is go to church. But I've never truly trusted Christ. I've never turned from my sin. The reason why I don't really care about fighting sin and the reason why I don't care really anything about genuinely loving people in the church is because I've never actually trusted Christ and what he did on the cross on my behalf. So as a pastor, as part of the body, I plead with you, if that's you this morning, that you would turn to Christ, that you would enter in with this group of believers who wants to love you, who wants to walk near you, and who needs you just as much as you need us. You see, there's hope in the midst of all of this. So many times we, we struggle with doubt and guilt, and we think there is no hope. And God, who is greater than our hearts, who knows everything, stands out, and he gives us his word, and he says, you're going to deal with this, and I'm big enough to handle it. And I'm going to give you my spirit to overcome your sin, and I'm going to give you people who will love you, who will care for you, who will walk with you, and they will hold your arms high, and I will use them in your life to help you overcome this. There is hope when we face it, and that hope is in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, I thank you that you don't sugarcoat things. God, I thank you that in the beginning of 1 John, we are told that if we do sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Thank you for pushing us, Father, for not allowing us to tolerate sin and to embrace things which sent you to the cross, but for exposing them for the darkness that they are and calling to us and telling us, you have life, abundant life, and the thing we're clinging to has no hope, has no real joy. It may temporarily satisfy us, but it will not completely satisfy us, and you call to us and you tell us to turn. Thank you, Father, for addressing things that we might think you would just want to shy away from. God, I pray that we as a body would come alongside each other, that we would repent when we don't love each other well, and we would embrace each other, and that we would be open and transparent with one another as we are dealing with sin, and that you would strengthen us to love each other, to walk with each other and to be a people where your name is exalted in all ways. Father, thank you for this. We ask all of it for the glory of Jesus and in his name alone. Amen.